Welcome to World Oil's Oil Field Electrification Technology Podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. I'm Jim Watkins from World Oil, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Hackenberg with Joliet Electric Motors. Shane, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Little, well, no point in talking about weather, right? Because this is going to be aired later. <laughs> so cut that shit. Yeah. <laughs> No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we're recording now, but this is the great thing. We're recording here up in the beautiful woodlands at Blend Bar Mm -hmm. with Davidoff Cigars. That's the full name, right? Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. That's a big, lengthy name. But they were kind enough to let us use their boardroom to record here and future episodes. So if you're in the woodlands, be sure and look up Blend Bar. Come by and check it out. If you like cigars and whiskey, this is the place in the woodlands. Am I right, gentlemen? Yeah, you're right. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is the food is fantastic here, too. Yeah, that really surprised me because when I was here just a couple weeks ago for the conference and I came over here and grabbed lunch, I was like, wow, this is really, really good food, you know? So, no, that's fantastic. And that third mystery voice is Dr. Ron Sickles, Ph.D. from Relevant Power Solutions. Dr. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Looking forward to being here today and sharing kind of the vision of where things are going in the oil field and EFRAC side of the world. Excellent. Excellent. And this is our very first episode for this whole series. So I'm glad to have you on as the first guest because you're a man of incredible knowledge. But tell us about that. Tell us about your history in the business and how you came to be where you're at and how you accumulated your vast knowledge of all things energy in the oil field. Well, I have to take you back over 35 years, so I'll make it as short as possible. But <laughs> It's a scenario that I look back at what gave me the ability to go after education and experience in the field. And I served in Vietnam, tail end of it, came home, was able to take my GI Bill and get started and go to school and accomplish a mechanical engineering degree. And and then furthered that as I went into working for myself in the construction industry with general contractors, general engineering contractors license with a hazmat endorsement and some specialty licenses in order to support that. And got a master's in petrochemical and then went on to get a PhD in environmental sciences and engineering. And it kind of all fit originally from California, San Diego. And I felt that if we could do it in California, as far as business goes, I had to know the environmental laws that allowed me to do it there. And if we did it there, we could do it anywhere in the country. So that's kind of where the career started. And and then I got in with a little company called Verizon. And I'm (laughs) saying that facetiously. We're able to, in the 1990s, every single walled tank had to be out of the ground in California. And we had to go to double wall. And at the same time, these Verizon landline sites had a scenario where The generators were old, so when we put new tanks in, and I was a contractor doing that, and how I got involved in that was my tank and fuel quality management program, and that was being able to come up with my claim to fame was removing contaminants out of refined fuels. And we started with them and put a lot of permanent systems in that gave us the ability to keep pristine state of fuel 24-7 so that when they needed it for their backup generators for communication, they had it. 
And so one thing led to the next. They asked if we ever thought about, or could we, remove those generators and replace them. And my answer immediately was, sure we can. Okay, (laughs) but didn't have the staff, didn't have anybody there to do that. But by God, I was going to do it. And we did. We went out and we hired the right people. And I got good subcontractors that worked under me to be able to do that. So I saw a real opportunity back then in Bakersfield, California. There was a steel mill that had gone out of business on 32nd Street. And it was the old McCarthy Steel Mill. And so I decided with my wife and some partners that we would go and we'd buy that facility and we would open up EFS Tank and Power. And we went into the packaging business. Oh, So we were packaging recips at the time, hadn't gotten into the turbine business yet. So we had a 10-acre facility that had a railroad spur that came in and nice. gave us the ability to do that. I had We were doing underground fuel storage tanks, and we were packaging the generator sets with UL-142 sub-base tanks and 2085 standalone above-ground tanks. But more importantly, I had the biggest coatings booth in the West that allowed me to do underground fuel storage mm. tanks in large capacity, up to 30,000-gallon tanks. Wow. wow. And it's what we call FRP, and FRP is where you put a wrap on a tank that gives you an interstitial area to make it a double-wall scenario so we could monitor that to see whether the inner tank would leak or it wouldn't leak. Right. And that's what EPA was requiring in California at the time. So my exposure to the power business goes way back to there. So, Dr. Ron, you're eminently qualified to give us a little tour through the oil field electrification technologies and kind of how they interplay. And this is going to serve kind of as a guide for the rest of the episodes that we record for this podcast. So let's kick it off. The base thing is microgrids, right? Yes, it is. I think we're pretty well versed on what has been conventional in the industry for a while now. And we've learned that You know, we are concerned about a carbon footprint, even though maybe oil and gas doesn't get that tag. We certainly know that we have to go a different route, and it includes different technologies. Microgrids, just a short little bleep here and we'll move on, is a combination of renewable energy with conventional ways that we produce power today and the way they integrate. And wind's there, and you can utilize wind, you got power, okay? Right, and right, right. When, when you got sun, you can utilize solar. And battery storage, of course, helps for being able to utilize between the two and allow us to go back to a conventional method or a grid method. Hey, everybody, let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Joliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. Right. And so a microgrid at its base is just like a grid like you'd have in a city, right? Only you're just setting this up as, are microgrids temporary? Do they stay there? I mean... Well, they can be both. They can be stationary or they could be mobile depending on what the application is and the size of it. All right. So footprint means a lot, you know, as well as I do. When you start getting into solar, you've got very large footprint that you need to work with. So as far as the microgrid itself, usually a customer would look at what their own requirements are for power. 
once we get that and know that really that's what they're trying to accomplish with it, you can set up different things. One of the things that we would be very interested in is where the transmission lines or substation would be. Right. Because there could be a PPA that you strike with the big powerhouses that you're able to take and defer what power you're not using onto the grid and help you pay for that. Yeah, so that leads us right into batteries and control systems, right? And there's different types of batteries out there, right? There is, Shane. You know, to be honest with you, the lithium-ion batteries that we normally know as a norm today, that's our EV vehicles and such, that's why we're having to recharge. They're efficient, but... You know, we're talking power here now. Now we're beginning to look at a much larger storage base that needs to be taken care of. And the ability for a battery to charge and decharge itself is very important. And I think there's still a lot of room here to grow. I know we hear of these miracle batteries that are coming out of certain companies like Tesla and so on and so forth that haven't been really introduced into the marketplace yet. But They're looking at different things besides what they've used as a norm. Iron flow batteries is one technology that comes to mind that is going to be very well looked at. It's a longer life scenario, and they're still working through it. There's a few pitfalls with that, but I think when you see that kind of a technology come and we get better at storage for the renewables like wind and solar, it's really going to fill a void that we have today in being able to use those at a more constant base. And it'll be a combination of batteries and it'll be a combination of the solar and wind and a capability of being able to store it for a longer time, you know, maybe 12, 18 hours versus a couple of hours we get with certain things that we do. But more importantly here, you know, you touched on it. You asked me about controls. So let's talk about controls for a minute. In any microgrid system, the software and controls is the heartbeat of the entire microgrid. If we don't have a well-established and good control and software package, switching between the technologies is very difficult. And we don't want blips. We don't want breaks in the power requirement when we're in the middle of doing what we're doing. So with that being the case, we want to reach out and let you know that controls and software are really what make a good microgrid system work properly. So that's like the secret sauce, right? Everybody has to have one that guarantees that there won't be any problems switching between sources. That's right. That's right. Excellent. And then we're going to talk some in episode four, I think, on systems integration and distribution. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, systems integration and distribution is really the nuts and bolts of being able to use it. Okay. Right. You know, we can produce power all day long, but if we don't have the right distribution in place and the right integration for that to be utilized, then we really don't have the other half of the equation. Interesting. So what's the difference, just for me, right, because I'm a novice, what's the difference between distribution and a control system? Aren't those the same thing? Or No, no. The control system will switch between the technologies, okay? And then integration and distribution is the vehicle by which you get it to where you're going to use that power. Ah, okay, okay. I get it. I get it. So with all that being said, it comes down to power sources. What types of power sources are there? Well, if you look at the conventional ways that we've been producing power, you've got reciprocal generators that have run on fossil fuels, both diesel and natural gas. Then gas turbines, again, right beside that, that 
in some cases can be dual burn too. They can run on diesel and gas also. And so the other things you look at, as we mentioned before, was solar and, you know, solar again, big footprint. We got to realize what that looks like. As the solar panels get better, the footprint will get smaller. And I think the idea of wind, not every place has wind. Okay. So (laughs) I like what I see when I travel. I just came back from Hawaii and, you know, on the islands, they've got their wind farms. Why? Because the trade winds blow through there so they can produce power. But on down days that you don't have wind there, okay, you're not producing any power. So then it goes into looking at hydrogen. Hydrogen is going to be kind of the wave of the future. I think as we get better at having vehicles and everything else that are there in regards to, you know, the trains, the 18-wheelers, the cars themselves, I think right now is the play for it. We haven't quite seen it break into power yet, but it's coming. There are turbines and recips that are looking to be able to run on that. And as the technology progresses and the price of hydrogen comes down, that's really the big part of it is the fact that you're having to such a high price on the technology at this point. Yeah, for sure. And I do know that out there right now, there's some companies that are working with that, trying to work out how to frack using hydrogen to power the motors and things like that. So it'll, or the engines, it'll be interesting. And yeah, I think hydrogen, I don't know if you saw that, but as we're recording, Sarah Week's going on, right, downtown? Yep. And my wife is the publisher of a hydrogen magazine. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And she's down there listening to all these people talk. And she said, it's crazy because Every single talk, no matter who it is, what they're talking about, they're always mentioning hydrogen. Right. So, you know, I think there's a lot of money behind it. And, there it is. And, you know, hopefully we'll see that come to fruition. What about biogas? That's an interesting area, right? Nobody hears about that. It really is. And I guess my background in it would be pyrolysis and how you take waste to gaseous state and then be able to burn that. But it's got to be clean too. You know, it's got to work in the equipment that you're trying to run it in. And you talk about hydrogen there, you know, to be able to take a biomass facility and produce hydrogen in it and then run a scenario where you could actually run turbines on that for producing power and then turn around after that. And the carbon that comes off of that, you pump into a greenhouse and we grow food. Okay. So, <laughs> so we could be a zero footprint out there that would allow us to do the things that would be sustainable. And I think as a country and as a society that, you know, we'd love to see those kind of things mature and come about where we can be net zero. Okay, we're not reliant on anything but a technology that could take us from A to Z. Yeah, well, that's like the Holy Grail, right, Shane? Yeah, no, exactly. While you were talking about that, I was just thinking, man, is it really possible to get to a 100% net zero end goal? I mean, do you really think that that's foreseeable in the near future? Well, you know, fortunately, without giving anything away, I mean, we are working with certain technologies out there that would allow us to do exactly what we're talking about doing. Nice. And again, it takes the right investment. It takes the right technologies, patents on those technologies to be able to pull everybody together and buy into it. But yes, to answer your question, yes, there is technologies that we're pursuing in order to get there. Net zero is where it's at. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And that's going to be an exciting episode. That's episode nine for anybody listening now. So, you know, 
if episode nine is not yet, you know, just look for it. But so on this breakdown, when we're talking about the gas recips, turbines, solar, wind, hydrogen, biogas, what's the breakdown, Dr. Ron? Tell us, what's the breakdown nowadays? I mean, are we like 98% recips and turbines right now? I mean, what's the breakdown? I think what you're looking at is probably the majority of our sources of power out there are recips and turbines. And they've been dabbling over the last few years with trying to add some renewable energy in there. And uh, it's coming. I mean, it's something that we got to prepare for and we got to get ready to work with it. And But yeah, the majority is recips and gas turbines right now. Do, do you know, I mean, just in your contacts and stuff, do you know anybody else? So, so I know somebody who's working on the hydrogen stuff. Are there any wind and solar experiments going on right now? Well, I think what you see here is not so much on the wind and solar technology. Sure, they're advancing. Everybody has R&D. Okay, so they're always advancing the technology. But I think the wink link there is the battery storage, the storage capacity, whether it be batteries or it be some other type of technology that emerges that gives us the validity to both those renewable energies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing that blows me away when we're talking about all of this is that in my mind, prior to our discussions, it was all like, oh, it's just going to be gas turbines or it's just going to be this. But in reality, it's a combination of everything, right? It is. It is. And let's face it, you know, what do we do by doing that in an industry of oil and gas that we are? Okay. It shows that we're willing to diversify and come to the table doesn't mean that we're going to be completely green on it right now. It's a combination of technologies that will work together to get us there. I don't think it's a scenario that you can just shut fossil fuel off and not allow yourself to work together with emerging technologies that will do a better job for our environment as we go. Yeah. Well, we're kind of finding that out the hard way right now (laughs) because... Boy, are we. Yeah, we are. You know, the thing that's interesting to me on the battery stuff is, you know, I look at batteries and I look at the whole ESG movement right now. And East obviously can stand for environmental, right? Right. I like to say it stands for electrification, you know, because it helps us out with selling motors. Sure. The other thing is economics. Right. You know, is it feasible? And my understanding right now with what we're seeing in the world with the, not to get political, but the Mm -hmm. geopolitical atmosphere is the cost of everything is going up. Oh, yeah. And so if the batteries are still have a lot of time to refine themselves and then get economically feasible, then we still got a little bit of a ways to maximize the efficiency of using those as a way to streamline these power generation. Shane, you're right on. You're hitting it right on point. I think what we need to look at when we talk about these other technologies and trying to go there and the environmental impact and the sources by which those are produced and what kind of product is produced is a scenario that is going to take time. It's not going to be overnight. You're not going to get there. But the thing that we need to be conscious of is that we need to work together with these technologies to be ready when we do get an efficient scenario and work with what we have right now, knowing that solar is only going to produce power when we've got a chance that the sunshine is shining and wind is going to produce power when the wind is blowing. And let's make an effort to incorporate that into our electrification to do what we need to do. 
Absolutely. Go ahead, Jim. No, no, definitely, definitely. And then we're going to wrap up this whole series talking about the different ways you can use electricity, right? So we're talking about how you get it, how you distribute it, the controllers and all of that. But in our last episode, we're going to talk about the uses of it. And Shane, that's your department, right? Well, yeah, specifically in terms of using it for electric frack, that's, you know, where I've been kind of cutting my teeth in in the last six years. And doing so in trying to provide a holistic solution that incorporates an electric motor over a diesel engine or even maybe a gas turbine. You know, it's provided me the opportunity to meet the other important players because we are all in this together, um, developing and refining the industry and really the world. And that's the most exciting part for me is, you know, I just see everything is evolving and we're super excited to be a part of it. Yeah, no, it it is amazing. And that's one of the things I love about our industry is that we always rise to the occasion, right? If all of a sudden everybody wants, oh, you know, we have to lower emissions and stuff, guess what? We're doing We're experts in emissions. We can figure out how to lower them, right? And so, you know, it's interesting that you can take all of that technology and expertise and just shift it a little bit towards something else and really make a difference, really make a difference in the emissions of our industry at large, right? Right. And you make a good point there, Jim. It takes everybody, okay? It's not just one technology out there. It's about all of us coming together and understand that we need each other, okay? We just don't know sometimes when and where and how, okay? But together, we can figure that out. That's one thing I could say about Americans. They're pretty intuitive to work together and look at the country we have. I mean, you know, we do things right by doing that. And I think that's a good point. You're just saying everybody's got to work together in order to get there. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dr. Ron, it's been great having you on, giving us a good overview of oil field electrification, where it's at today. And that's a wrap on episode one. And so everybody stay tuned because on episode two, we're going to start diving into those topics in greater detail. And first up, we're going to talk at length about microgrids. So be sure and listen in. Great. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at oetpodcast at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor that's been providing engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at joliettelectricmotors.com. Electric Motors.com.